Uh, Romans uh, 14, as I indicated, on how to deal with differences. In 1700s, there was this uh, religious persecution broke out in Europe, and uh, and so people had to flee, and many fled to Moravia, and many of them ended up here at this estate here, um, Count Zinzendorf's estate. And Count Zinzendorf was a believer, 27-year-old, who uh, encouraged uh, folks to gather there and flee from persecution. But he noticed that as they gathered together from various traditions and theological differences, they began to argue with one another as to what the truth was. And so there was disunity. So Zinzendorf encouraged them to focus on the message of the cross and on Christ. And on Tuesday, August 5th, 1727, Zinzendorf led them in prayer for an entire night, to which they coined the term Hernhut. This place was Hernhut, which means the Lord's watch. And then a week later, the power of God came upon the community during a communion service, which shattered, came in such shattering force that people would feel it 10 miles away somehow, and they were stricken by it under the shock of this force of the the visitation of the Holy Spirit. And the records of the time pointed to this event as the moment when they learned to love one another. Two weeks later, during a prayer service, it never ended. For the next hundred years, it never ended. Just people came in in shifts. Sort of like uh, International House of Prayer 24 years ago began in a and it continues 24-7. If you're ever in Kansas City, you should visit International House of Prayer for an hour or two, continually. Well, as a result of this 100 years of prayer, um, many, many lives were impacted, including John and Charles Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church back then, and they came to Christ, this renewal and uh, 3,200 Moravian pastors, evangelists, missionaries poured out of Germany to every continent. Among them was a guy who was influenced by the Wesley brothers a little bit later, whose name was Francis Asbury, who became a circuit rider, riding his horse around the United States. He became a missionary to the United States, and he preached for 45 years. Francis Asbury, you've heard the word Asbury in the news this past couple of weeks, Asbury Revival in Kentucky at this college, named after Francis Asbury. And uh, a student gave testimony that Asbury campus was really divided after COVID and then since. It's just been divided politically and theologically and even economically. It's just divided in so many different ways. And there were students who didn't really like each other on campus. You can feel the tension. But then after chapel on August 8th, Wednesday, when students should have gone to class, many of them remained behind, and the chapel service never ended. It went on for over two weeks, um, 24-7, throughout the night. And then thousands came upon campus uh, because they wanted to see what was happening at Asbury, even from out of the country, in fact, there were Christian celebrities and musicians and evangelists and those carrying signs. They, would, they came on campus, but none of them were allowed to bring in their agenda because it was all to remain 
Christ-focused. No famous person took the stage. It was led by students. We've become so divided over secondary issues. The student at Asbury, another student, gave testimony. These, these, these students who hated each other, they, they, we could see them praying together and worshiping together, and everything was dismissed except for love for Christ as they repented. And it continued to spread through campuses. It's even touched Baylor University and Texas A&M. And dozens of universities are experiencing revivals like this now. But we've become divided over secondary issues. It's not new. It never has been an, a, um, dismissed. And the Apostle Paul even addressed it in Romans chapter 14. He said in verse 1, "...accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters." So Paul addresses four different things in Romans 14. This is how you deal with those who might disagree with you. Find yourself in contention. First, we are called to extend grace to those who differ from us. Paul highlights two examples. The first is in verse 2. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak only eats vegetables. No, Gentiles were coming to Christ, and Jews, the Jewish believers had all these rules and laws from you know, the Old Testament, and, uh, and they wanted to carry it over to this new faith. They said, no, we're saved by grace through faith. And so there was contention there. And then other Gentiles, they came from religions that would offer sacrifices to pagan gods. And so when they came to Christianity, they said, we can't eat the meat that's been offered to pagan gods when we buy in the marketplaces. And so they said, we don't want anything to do with that. It's evil meat. And so Paul says, no, no, no. There's, there is contention among you. Some say it's okay to eat, and some say it's not. Verse 2, one person's faith allows them to eat anything. Another, but another whose faith is weak only eats vegetables. The second example was in verse 5. One person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another considers every day like since Jesus' resurrection is Sabbath on Saturday, or do we have Sabbath on Sunday on the resurrection day? What's appropriate? Uh, can, can I take a Sabbath on another day of week if I have to work on Sunday? Or would that be a sin? Is it still important to observe Sabbath today, or is Jesus our Sabbath rest? So these are questions that swirl in our minds as well. <clears throat> you know, when I was raised, there was a day when we didn't do anything after church because it was a sin to work. We had to rest, and it was quite boring for a kid. But oftentimes, though, we'd go out to eat, which, which kind of was a paradox because we caused other people to work when we were resting, right? Those who made the meals. And, and, and so the question is, what is right? Are, are those who, who don't eat, are they better than those who do eat? All food must be, well, anyway. So you, you get the idea. So who's more right? Those who are free and can eat anything or those who have, are bound by these rules? Who's more right? What does Paul say? He says, neither. Verse 5, one person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another considers every day alike. Here it is. Each one should be fully convinced in their own mind. In other words, accept those who differ with you when it comes to disputable matters because we're all in process. 
We're all changing. We'll be different five years from now. Just accept people. The covenant affirmations, we have six of them in our denomination. And I won't share them right now, but the last one is we affirm the reality of freedom in Christ. This freedom allows for differences of opinion in matters of interpretation, doctrine, and practice. But within the context of biblical guidelines and historical Christianity. So God's word is our first affirmation. We live by this. It's our authoritative guide. And so it can't contradict that, our freedom. So anyway, that's the first thought that Paul had. Secondly, let God be the judge. You know, when, when there are differences, don't be the judge of others. You know, Jesus said that. Don't let God be the judge. Verse 3, the one who eats everything must not, must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. There's a word contempt and judge here. The one who enjoys freedom must not look down on the other person with contempt who has deeper convictions than they they in specific matters. Don't look down on them. For example, hey, don't be so legalistic, dude. Don't be so narrow-minded, bound up with all your rules. Take a chill pill. You know, I'm free. I'm free. You got to be free too. Don't look with contempt. But the one who has more convictions about issues... They can't judge the one who has more freedom. Paul says, we need to cut each other some slack and choose to believe the best in each other rather than quickly jump to conclusions about their motives and about one's intentions. You know, we're so good at doing that because we're experts. You know, God has given me so much discernment, the gift of discernment, that I can discern when someone's off. And no, he says, don't be the judge. Let God be the judge. 17 years ago during uh, when we first arrived here in McPherson, I had to get my car done at, I think, I forgot the name of the garage, but it was across from Janus Lumber, and next to it was NASBAR. And so when I was waiting on my car, I had like a half hour to wait, so I decided to go get some lunch and said, hey, there's NASBAR. So I walked in NASBAR, looked around. I think I was the only customer. I sat at the bar, ordered a burger and a Coke, and I ate it. Half hour later, I came out, and... Uh, as soon as I opened the door, there was a church member and their eyes almost fell out of their head because, what are you doing, pastor? Well, I had a burger and a Coke, you know? And, and, and so he, I could have looked, looked down upon him with contempt, thinking, quit being so legalistic, dude. Come on, just had a burger. And I could have had this negative thought and feeling about him. And he could have judged me for compromising, eating it in the den of iniquity in a bar like that. But instead, we communicated. We understood each other. We disagreed on other issues. Um, he's no longer here with us. Uh, but, um, but we learned to love each other's differences and respect each other. And, and so that was that. And so after I sobered up, I got my car and... <laughs> Okay. All right. Billy Graham says, the Holy Spirit's job to convict, it's God's job to judge, and it's our job to love. It doesn't get any more simple than that. We need to love. Focus on that job description. Paul uses the title then Lord repeatedly in the first 13 uh, verses. He, He uses the word Lord because Jesus is our Lord. He's our master. He's the one who sits on the throne. Get your, get your lazy behind off the throne. Not, not lazy. Get your behind off the throne 
off the throne because you're not the judge. He is. Verse 6. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. Whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone. None of us dies to ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether you live or die, we belong to the Lord. It goes on in verse 9 and talks about Don't be the judge in verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we all stand before God's judgment seat. He's the Lord, right? The religious leaders wanted to put Peter and the other apostles to death because they wouldn't obey them as the mighty Sanhedrin, the religious uh, tribune of the day. They said, do not go preach in the name of this man, Jesus. And they said, we cannot obey you. We must obey God. And so they wanted to put him to death. But the the Pharisee named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up on the Sanhedrin. And he said, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. For you will only find yourselves fighting against God. I read, I read on uh, the blog of Asbury Revival site, I read that certain Christians were condemning Asbury. This was not of God. This is not of God because the gospel is not being preached there. It, it, they're just worshiping. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, what are you talking about? Yes, there is a time to, to evangelize, go out to share your faith, but this is a time of repentance and brokenness, and transformation, and worship. This is what this is about right now. The gospel really doesn't need to be preached. We just need to humble ourselves before him and know that the Lord is Lord. Get off the throne and quit being so critical. Let God be the judge. He is the Lord. We are not. And then the third thing we have to do if if we're In dealing with differences, Paul says, don't cause others to stumble by insisting on your own rights and freedom. Verse 13, instead, would you make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in the way of a brother or sister? I'm convinced and being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know to be spoke, uh, as good to be spoken of as evil. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. And then he goes on to say, do not cause others to stumble. I would never make someone go out to lunch with me at a bar if I knew they were a recovering alcoholic. It would be too tempting for them. I could cause them to stumble by my freedom, if you will. But at the same time, if someone hasn't struggled, I'm at a conference or something, I, I can go into a bar and have a burger with someone if that's not their struggle, because I have freedom in that as well. Verse 15 Paul says, do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Now, if someone comes to church and they say, you know what, Pastor? I like the church, but I'm really, really offended that you have drums and electric guitars in worship. 
that's just not right, causes me to stumble. Or, or if they say, I, I don't like it that you have communion just once a month, it causes me to stumble. Or that you allow women to sometimes preach and pray and read scripture and lead, that, that just causes me to stumble. I'm thinking, well, are we destroying your faith? We must distinguish between disputable matters and preferences, our secondary issues, if you will. Most of the complaints I've ever heard in churches are expressed by those who have longtime church members who are mature in the faith and they're not going to stumble in their faith away from Christ. However, there are issues that can cause someone to stumble away from Christ. <clears throat> I can think of many of them, and one example would be like as a, as a parent, when my kids were young, if we had kids come over from another family and they're having an overnighter and they want to watch a movie, we have the popcorn and we, I, I buy this new DVD for the kids. Hey, it's a new Spider-Man movie. And I put it in and one kid says, hey, Mr. Black, my, my parents won't let us watch Spider-Man. They say it's too violent and scary. Ah, don't worry about it. You know, I, I'll fast forward the scary parts and, you know, I've seen the other ones and it's Okay. Okay, Mr. Black. And so if I cause them to watch Spider-Man with the rest of the kids, then I'd be causing them to stumble against their, their parents' wishes. I'd be causing them in their hearts to compromise obedience to their parents. They'd have to go home and either lie about it or whatever. So that's an issue. We can cause people to disobey by our freedom. Don't cause others to stumble. Accept those who differ. Let God be the judge. And then finally... Let me ask this. Are we supposed to make judgments about what is right or wrong? The Bible says do not judge, but we have to make judgments about things, right? Verse 13 says, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Jesus said, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. We've heard this over and over again. And it's used as a weapon against Christians. You're so judgmental. For example, in some churches... Same-sex marriages are permitted. And, and in those churches, they would say, you know, someone's private life is their own business. Uh, who do you think you are telling me who I can and cannot love and marry? You're not the judge of me. You're a sinner too, you hypocrite. Quit judging. Other churches, like ours, would say that marriage is between a man and a woman. And that's how the Bible defines it, and so that's what we teach. But both claim to believe the Bible and read it? How are, are we to make judgments on people who disagree with us on this as to what's right or wrong? Here's the fourth thing Paul says, and the final thing. Christians are called to make right judgments. Right judgments. John 7. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly or judge righteously. Proper judgment, if you will. There are such things as absolute truth, like the Ten Commandments. It's always wrong to murder. It's always wrong to steal and to lie, get, get, bear false testimony. We don't have to argue whether that's right or wrong. These are absolute truths. We can make a judgment on the truth. Jesus said, do not judge or you'll be judged. But he went on to say, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from someone else's eye. So you could, you could remove the speck from your brother's eye if you will and point out that I don't, I don't agree with that. But first remove the plank out of your eye and then when you go to your brother, you go to them with the right attitude and then you help them because you care for them. 
And then he goes on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does in Matthew 7, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. Well, how can we determine if it's a false prophet if we're not to judge anyone? We have to discern whether it's false prophet or not by the fruit that they bear. Paul deals with the same thing in Romans 13 and Romans 8. Let us behave decently as in daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness and sexual immorality. We have to make judgments to discern if something is immoral or not, right? Otherwise, you know, anything goes. Quit judging. So how do we make right judgments? Um, We need to determine the essential versus the non-essential. In essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, we have freedom or liberty. Um, Essentials would be things like, this is God's word, and it's true. We have one Savior. We have one God. Um, uh, Other covenant affirmation is, we believe in the church and that we need to be a part of it. We believe in the ministry and mission of the church. Go out and serve. We need to do that. These are not debatable. And the sixth one is, we have freedom to agree to disagree on secondary issues. All right? Uh, So someone might say, is pornography essential or non-essential? I mean, it's not in your six essentials in the Covenant Church. I don't see a seventh one that says stay away from pornography or homosexuality or whatever. Well, is it essential or not? Well, we do believe in God's Word as our first essential. So whatever disagrees with that, we'll disagree with. But instead of making it an issue of essential or not essential, someone posed this question. Why not have three categories? This is really helpful, I think. Uh, Yeah, right there. Um, In essential matters, uh, we need, okay, beliefs are either things that we'll die for, they will be the essentials to Christianity. Like there's one way to, Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior, we'll die for him. There are the things we will defend that are essential to the truth and to holy living, and then there are the non-essentials that are still important, but they won't determine your holy living. For example, if we have communion once a month or every week, or if we have praise music or hymns, or if, you know, there are a lot of non-essential issues where churches can disagree upon, and that's okay. They're written in pencil. The things that are essential to salvation, we write in blood. The things that are essential to holy living, we write in pen because we defend them. And the things we write in pencil are things we can agree to disagree upon. Many secondary issues that split churches and divide families. So we need to make right judgments next in humility. Not just determine the essential, but in humility. And I'm almost done here. So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them, yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? The gospel proclaims that all have sinned and fall short, Right? So we need to have a humble attitude when we are dealing with differences. Perry Noble said, if a guy is smoking at the door at church, if if he bothers you, then I'm so glad you didn't come inside because we have people struggling with pornography and addiction to prescription drugs in this building. We have people who struggle with bitterness and anger and greed and resentment. We have all kinds of sinners and jacked up people in here. If the smoker by the door bothered you, the people inside would bother you even more because we're not a museum of saints. We're a hospital for sinners. There's no perfect people in here. We deal with others in humility. And then in gentleness. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person 
gently or with gentleness. Of course, we need to use love in all things, charity. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And then love means putting others first, right? Romans 14, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Romans 15, 1, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Each one should please our neighbor for their good to build them up. Put others first rather than, I got my rights, I got my freedom, I'm going to live the way I want to, that type of attitude, you know? We always prefer others above ourselves if we're Christ-like. <clears throat> and then we can make right judgments. I'll close with this quote. Rick Warren says, Our culture has accepted two huge lines, lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to make judgments, to be compassionate. So I pray that we, we are a compassionate, grace-filled church that refuses to judge others, but we make judgments based on God's word. But when we make judgments and, and disagree, then we do so with an attitude of humility and grace and love and gentleness. We extend grace to those who differ. We allow God to be the judge of others as we focus on the love. We will focus on not causing others to stumble because of our freedom, exercise of our freedoms and rights. And then we will make right judgments instead of uh, critical judgments. Let's pray. So Lord, there's a ton packed in this chapter, Lord, and I pray uh, that even if there's one bit of truth that you want each person to leave with today, it may be different for everyone, I pray, Lord, that that will be the truth that will resonate and remain in our hearts and our minds. I pray that the rest will just fall like dust to the floor. Lord, just one thing, Lord, that, we can, that, that can make us more like you by the way we love you and treat others, Jesus. Uh, but make this church a place that is welcoming, a, a, pl a place that not only stands up for the truth, but we have grace and truth together, I pray. Amen.